Welcome to the Arrive Podcast, the U.S. Immigration Law Podcast for Canadians. I am Jeremy Richards, and I'm here with my business partner and fellow immigration attorney, Christine Jerusik. Together, we are Richards and Jerusik Immigration Law, practicing U.S. immigration law from our offices in Buffalo, New York, and Toronto, Ontario. And we help Canadians to work and live in the United States. If you haven't already, please follow and like us on your podcast app. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, Richards and Jerusik Immigration Law. And follow us and like us on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram uh, for regular updates on U.S. immigration law uh, that we have created just for Canadians. Uh, in addition, on our website, there is a resources tab where you can subscribe to a weekly newsletter where you will receive all our recent updates and posts about U.S. immigration law as well. Uh, we're back to talk about uh, U.S. immigration law for Canadians. Uh, there's been a few updates since we last spoke. Um, the most pressing one would be the upcoming H-1B visa lottery. Uh, they announced the filing windows for that. Uh, March of, March 1st is when the lottery will open. So if you have an employer that wants to sponsor you for an H-1B, maybe you're on a TN visa, maybe you don't have a visa at all, maybe the profession that you want to work in in the United States requires an H-1B and, it, and you need sponsorship mm-hmm. under the H-1B, now's the time to do that. So putting that out there, uh, if that is something that you're interested in, uh, be aware that the lottery is approaching soon. Um, and those registrations will be entered in March. Um, and it's a three-week window, so it's not something that has, you have to rush and do. Um, so they give you plenty of time to do it. It doesn't matter when you enter the lottery. You can enter on the first day of the lottery, the last day of the lottery. You don't get preference based on when you entered it. Um, so just as long as you get in before they run the lottery, you're fine. You'll be, you'll be in the mix, and you'll have that opportunity. Now, with the H-1B lottery, since we're discussing that, the numbers are insane. They're, they're going through the roof. Uh, when I started practicing, uh, there was no lottery for the H-1B. You didn't have to worry about it. They allocate 85000 a year uh, visas for H-1B. 65 bachelor's level and then initial 20000 for master's or higher. And it would fill... They would use the allotment of 85,000 visas throughout the year, but very rarely would it be filled on day one. Uh, it, could be, it could take weeks to months throughout the year to use up all those visas until they came available again for the next lottery or the next year in allocation of, of H-1B visas. Now, with the new system and the demand for foreign workers in the United States, and the ease of entering this lottery, right? Because all you have to do is pay the lottery admission fee, and there's really no other cost involved um, to enter this lottery. They last year, I think it was well over four hundred thousand people that entered the lottery, and they chose wow. eighty-five thousand. Yeah. So, and they're expecting even you know five hundred thousand plus this year um, because of the demand. So if that's the case, your odds of getting in the lottery are shrinking quickly. Um, you're less than 20% chance of getting in the H-1B lottery. So the odds are not in your favor. They used to be. used to be if you needed a job, you could essentially file for H-1B and get one. 
uh, and then you'd start working. Uh, but that's changed over the years to the point where it's very difficult uh, to get an H-1B. Unless they give more H-1B numbers or change that process, the H-1B is, is especially as a Canadian, not your number one option. Uh, and that's why we talk mostly about TN visas and L visas and E visas in our podcast. Those are more readily available. You don't you don't have those cap limitations and the lottery uh, that uh, limits the amount of those that are issued. So, if you are one that unfortunately needs an H one B, now is the time. And uh, so today we're going to answer several more questions that were submitted by listeners. And you know, thank you again for submitting these these questions to us. Um, and you can you can submit those by email uh, th- directly through our website. If you go on our website, you can you can submit questions. It's pretty pretty easy to find uh, on our website how you can submit a question, and then we will answer them on our podcast. Um, and sometimes we have situations that aren't necessarily questions that people present, but they're good items of discussion. Um, and I'm going to start with this one, and this is a actually a post on our website. We I will we do a plug for this all the time, but our resources uh, or our blog on our website, and we post things on there on a regular basis. So there's there's new content every week, and one of the things we recently posted is about verifying information. Verify the information that you find on the internet about U.S. immigration. And we give five different, um, five different suggestions on how you can verify uh, the information that you find. Verify that source. Verify the authenticity of it. Verify the accuracy of it. There's a verification that you should do before you follow advice that you find on the Internet. And if you go onto our blog, you'll find it. It's called Immigration Advice, My Friend, a Facebook group, Reddit, or Google said. <laughs> and that's what we hear all the time. Oh, I read this on Reddit, or my friend did this, or I Googled it and it said this. Well, that's not the best source of information. Well, the problem is immigration is so fact-specific, right? And it's so um, personal to you and your situation that having somebody who is even a very similar situation of you might have a very different case than you um, and very different um, options. So you, know, you got to verify the source of that information, make sure that it applies specifically to you. In most cases, it doesn't. Yes. Very spec. Spec. <laughs> Fact specific. Fact specific, right. So we have five steps of verification if, if you want to verify stuff. Now, is that a good place to start? Yeah, sure. It's a good place to start. Could you, can you Google it? You know, go to, you know, message groups or Facebook groups or whatever it is to get started? Sure. It'll give you a level of understanding enough to hang yourself. <laughs> In a lot of right? cases, yeah. And people do. So the first thing you should do is verify the credentials of the person that's giving the information. If it's a verified source, if it's somebody who is a legitimate source, you should be able to find their email address, their phone number, and some way to verify who this is and where they're getting this information. Um, if it's your friend... And I, and I have a lot of good friends out there. I'm not knocking on friends, but just like Christine said, everybody, every case is facts, right. specific. It could have been years ago. There could have been a change last week in immigration that impacts your case that didn't apply then. There are so many factors. Or you may have a different credential than the other person and have, have different opportunities and different options that, than they had. 
Exactly. So verify their credentials, number one. Friend, Reddit, Google, eh, you can start there, but you better keep verifying. Number two, verify the dates of the information. How old is it? A lot of immigration, uh, it changes on a regular basis, and we talk about that on here. But something that applied even a month ago may not apply today. Or applied five years ago may not apply to right. today there's or 10 years ago. There's constantly cases being decided in immigration law that's changing the way that the law is interpreted. So you need to check with an immigration lawyer to make sure that your fact pattern and your situation is going to be the same as what you're seeing online. Yeah, and, and new statutes come out and new memos come out, mm-hmm. uh, new guidance comes out. And if you find a memo that looks great and supports your situation, we'll make sure that that hasn't been superseded by something else. So... Verify um, the date of that information that you're getting. How old is that? Is it current? Third, verify the source of the information. Where are they getting this? Is this through their personal experience? Did they find it on another message group? Did they watch it on TV? Where did they get it? Uh, a legitimate source, and if you look through our, our blogs, we always reference the outside sources where we got our information. So we'll reference back to... The USCIS website. It's probably one of the ones we reference the most. Or CBP, yeah. Yeah. right? Or Department of State. Or the Foreign Affairs Manual. Or the Foreign Affairs Manual. That's another huge one we refer to. Or a memo. But we always back it up. We don't just tell you what we think. There is a source to that information. And there are situations where it is based on experience and there is no memo that explains it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that's, you know, value added for an attorney because there are some things that you just have to yeah, know how to do. Specifically in the area of TNs, we get a lot of people calling and saying, oh, well, I just need a bachelor's degree. Well, yeah, that's what the NAFTA now the USMCA says, just a bachelor's degree. But there's a lot of specificity with that that isn't line, outlined in the in the actual law. So... Yeah, the amount of interpretive memos and guidance that clarifies what's said in the USMCA is crazy. Um, So uh, make sure that this information you're getting has a valid uh, and a credible source. Um, The next is verify the URLs. Uh, Where are you reading this from? Is that an actual legitimate source? So if somebody is providing a source, is it from USCIS? dot gov for example or cbp dot gov or uh dol dot gov or dhs dot gov these are all government sources and they're from the legitimate government institutions that produce the law and write the law uh so make sure it's not coming from some crazy url in some i don't know we'll pick on antarctica but it's not coming from you know, like Antarctica. Some iceberg in Antarctica is the source of the information. And you, you track down the URL, and that's not a legitimate source. So make sure the source, uh, you track down those URLs, and you verify that where they're saying they got the source of the information is, in fact, a legitimate source. And the last thing, and of course we have to say it, mm-hmm. verify with an immigration lawyer. No matter how much due diligence you do on your own, some of these situations you can get yourself into, uh, you're just going to, like I said, you're going to hang yourself. You're going to get enough information on the internet that you're going to get yourself into trouble. And sometimes you get yourself into big trouble. And you can ruin your options of 
immigration to the United States if you don't do it correctly. So case in point, Christine, actually, we were a little bit delayed today um, getting to our podcast. Um, we're not good at that clock thing all the time. <laughs> um, and Christine just got off the phone. And this is, I think, the perfect case in point. We got an inquiry a few days ago, and the individual said, um, you, you talk about it. So the one that you just had where oh, the, the so ESTA situation. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I just got off the phone with someone whose um, fiancé is here in the United States, um, came to visit from the United Kingdom, um, and she entered on an ESTA. Which How many years ago was this? No, A while ago, she, right? No, no, she just entered. Oh, she just okay. entered. This one hasn't been here. This situation hasn't been here. That it hasn't long. been. Yeah, she hasn't been here that long. So we have done ones where people have been here for years. This person has only been here for several months. So their ESTA isn't even expired yet. So they're still in status. Um, but they had questions about, you know, they're looking at getting married, possibly adjusting status here in the United States, and had some advice from a prior attorney that they'd spoken with that there was, was absolutely something that they could never do that she needed to leave the United States and process outside the United States. And that's not necessarily true. So it's based, not true at all. I mean, well, based on their fact pattern, it isn't. So I was able to advise them that it is something that they could do. Um, you know, certain steps need to be taken. Uh, certain evidence needs to be assembled. And, you know, we, we need to make sure that we make a good and valid case for her. But at the same time, that opportunity is available to this couple. Um, and they were completely under the impression that this was something they couldn't do. And they were just a, kind of like last minute, just sending out a, an email to see if they could kind of fact check what this lawyer said, because they, they had some suspicions and they were right. So they do have an opportunity to adjust status. It's going to make their life a lot easier, um, you know, based on their fact pattern. Obviously, not everybody can do that, but they definitely could. And that lawyer was wrong to tell them they couldn't. Yeah, exactly. So you even when you do these steps of verification and you get to that attorney part, make sure that lawyer has specific experience with what you're dealing with. And if you have doubts about you know, their experience, then get another opinion. Most immigration lawyers will offer, offer a free assessment of your situation. As long as it's not detailed immigration advice and you're just looking to see whether or not they can assist you, then that's what this was. It's just a free assessment where somebody has an immigration opportunity and they want to know if it's possible and make sure you fact check, double check, triple check. So that the information you're following is in fact good advice uh, so that you don't get yourself into a trouble. Uh, another one I ran into this week um, was an individual and it was another similar fact pattern where this individual was, is engaged to, a Canadian, uh, so fiance US, of a U.S. citizen, and working in the United States on a TN, under TN status, and has a had a question about how does marriage impact her ability to work in the United States, as well as after they get married, could she even get a green card, or would that be violating the law in some way? So the future impact of, of marriage on her ability not only to get a TN and change employers, but also future ability to adjust status or, in other words, come to the United States and get a green card through that relationship. The advice that I saw was crazy that these individuals were receiving. This was on a message board. 
some some people are telling them absolutely you can you cannot do that. If you get married to a U.S. citizen on a TN, they could revoke your visa. They're not going to give you another one in the future. You absolutely can't change status if you do that. Or if you do do that, don't think about going to the border because the border won't give you another TN. You have to, you know, stay away from the border and only use USCIS. All sorts of crazy advice that, and some of it was from attorneys that clearly don't practice enough in this field or deal enough with Canadians. And they're giving bad advice to people. So this situation, if done correctly, you can get married to a U.S. citizen all you want. Yeah, you, it's marrying, frustrating. Marrying I mean, a U.S. citizen doesn't make you an outcast to the United States and its immigration laws and then void all of your opportunities for a TN or for a green card. That's I not mean, how it I works. I understand why some practitioners are you know, conservative in their advice with respect to that. And you know, when you're putting information out there in, on the Internet, um, maybe you don't have all the facts, but at the same time, that's a reason not to trust that information Double because check. Yeah, you're not you, you don't know who you're talking to and you don't know what experience they have with that. So if you think you and have I'd an like to think we're conservative, right? Well, we are and we aren't. So we are conservative. But if we see the fact pattern matches what is, you know, an opportunity that or an option that's available for somebody, we're going to let them know that that's an option. Yep. Um, it's, it's not like we're going to close off certain options for people unless we absolutely know that it's not a path, for example. Um, you know, certain paths to certain um, work visas and paths to green cards and things like that, we'll tell you, you know, that's not, you know, an opportunity for a green card is not there for this situation. So you yeah, have to be careful. Be very careful. But, you know, with this fact pattern, you can absolutely get married to a U.S. citizen if you're on a TN visa. And then you can get another TN after that. And you can change your employer. And you can go to a green card. Are there things you need to be aware of along the way to do it properly? Absolutely there are. It doesn't mean it's not possible. Uh, so we deal with that all the time. We deal with Canadians, which means we deal with Canadians that enter in relationships with U.S. citizens while they're working in the U.S. and eventually want to get a green card. It happens. It's definitely possible. So be careful. Uh, verify that information that you're getting. Make sure it's from an, uh, from a, a good source and that they have experience dealing with, with what it is that you need help with. And don't be afraid to ask them, have you done a case like this before? Well, when was the last time you did a case like this? How did it go? Uh, you're, you're the one that's, uh, your, your life is the one that's impacted by this, not, not that individual giving the advice. So do your due diligence. So on to some of these questions we have here. Uh, Christine, you got, you have some of those, let's see. Yeah, we got, we got several good questions this week. Um, the first one's from a Canadian who was, um, trained in medicine and currently licensed in the province of British Columbia as a general practitioner, um, living in Ontario, semi-retired and would like to now practice in North Carolina. They have a state license in North Carolina. They don't explain how they received that, but they have one. Um, but the way they want to practice is to do virtual medicine, telehealth, to patients in North Carolina while they're residing and living in um, and, and and actually just staying in Ontario. So not traveling to North Carolina to perform any of the duties of the job. Do they need a work permit? And, and we're not going to get into licensing issues or anything like We're definitely not <laughs> medical professionals right. or uh, this the state or the government that's going to... Uh, Make sure that this individual is practicing with the proper license. But immigration question, I mean, this is a pretty straightforward one. 
if you're not working inside the United States, you do not need a work permit. You do not need authorization to practice remotely. However, and this is, this is I think, where this question is going. If this individual is working for a U.S. employer, what we often see is even if you don't need work authorization, because you do not, if you are sitting in uh, Ontario and you are doing telehealth, I'm sure there's, again, there are some restrictions as far as giving advice as a medical professional. But from an immigration perspective, you can do that all you want. You're not working in the United States. Uh, same applies to IT. We see this a lot in IT. If you are working if, and performing services for U.S. clients and you're sitting, sitting in Canada, you don't need a TN visa to work or to perform that work remotely from Canada. Uh, in fact, if the border hears that you are doing 100% remote work from Canada, they're not even going to give you one because you don't need it. If you, if you told them, oh, I just need this because I want it, um, but I'm going to be working from Canada. They won't give you the Are TN. you going to be working from home in the United States and it's a 100% remote position? That's a good point. Yep. So you just want to come live in the U.S. You got a U.S. job offer and they're going to, they're, there's no part of the job that requires you to be in the office or inside or the United States. Or client site or anything. Nothing. So it's 100% remote work. That position does not qualify for a TN. And a border officer, if they find that out, will say, okay, have fun. Keep doing your job. You can keep doing it just the way you are. You don't need a TN. Have a nice day. Yeah, and we've seen them say that before, so be very careful about that. Uh, the The other question within the question here is a lot of U.S. employers, however, won't put you on payroll because a U.S. employer to employ you like this would have to employ you as an independent contractor, uh, which is a 1099. And that's the tax. That's the tax. That's um, the tax code classification. Yeah, yeah. ten ninety nine. Uh, so independent contractor. Canadians are very familiar with independent contractors. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the status you would be as an employee. A lot of employers don't do that, and they won't put you on payroll if you're an independent contractor. They want you to be an employee on their books, and what is called it would be similar to a T four in Canada. It's a W two in the U S. In order for a U.S. employer to do that, even if you're working remotely from Canada 100%, you would have to have some sort of a work status as well as a social security number, a U.S. social security number to do it. And that's a situation that that we run into a lot is even though these individuals might be working remotely, their employer or whoever it is is telling them they need a work visa or they need a, a, social, a social security, security number, number or yeah. else they can't put them on payroll. So that's a separate issue. Now, is it required for them to have the visa to do what they're doing? No, it's not. But your employer may require to put you on payroll because they don't want to pay you as an independent contractor. Right, so that's not an immigration issue. That's an employer issue. Yeah, taxation. Their HR, yeah. yeah. So if you are in that situation, there's a fine line there. Make sure um, if you are doing a TN application and it's telework, that what you're doing and how you present it is done properly. Similarly, uh, this so this um, doctor that's looking at coming uh, or doing telehealth in North Carolina, when he comes to the United States, say, on vacation or to visit friends and family, um, do you think he'll run into any problems at the border if they find out that he's working for a company in North Carolina? Absolutely. You better not mention that. You know, better not do it while you're here. Right, exactly. So when you're coming to the U.S. and you're in this situation, you better only be coming for recreation 
even having your laptop with you could be considered an issue because they, if the officer finds out that you're working for a U.S. company, they could think that you're going to be working on vacation and you'll be working inside the United States receiving pay from a U.S. employer, and that is unauthorized employment. Very good point. The You're carrying, if you're doing telehealth, right, your, your laptop mm-hmm. is probably your tool. Wherever you take that tool, you can work remote. So, yeah, that's a very good point. And the second you cross the border into the U.S. with your tools, they could just, they they could um, assume you're working and say, not today. Right, deny you entry. So be careful, doctor. All right, next one. So the second question we received this week was from someone whose country of birth is Turkey, and they're currently residing there and a citizen of Turkey. They have a valid social security number, and it's valid for work only with DHS authorization. We've seen cards like that. Um, A lot of our clients get them from social security. It means that you need to have uh, some kind of authorization from the immigration authorities in the U.S. to work in order for that social security number to be valid. Um, They obtain that while working in the USA with a valid work visa, but it's now expired, meaning their visa is expired. And they actively live in Poland with a residence permit. Oh, I got that wrong. I guess they're living in Poland. Um, They recently started a single-member LLC in the USA, fully remotely using organizations. They applied for an EIN number using using their social security number. And they just saw that they are being reported as self-employed 1099 employee in their credit report. Um, Is this process legal to do, or do I need a work permit or authorization to continue working because I don't have an active DHS authorization right now? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, So, yeah... You answered the first one right there. The val- So the Social yeah. Security, you can get two annotations. Mm-hmm. One is this one where it's valid with DHS approval or authorization. And that means if you're on, on a non-immigrant visa, such as a TN, an H-1B, an L-1, an E, you have to have that in conjunction with that Social Security number to then be authorized to work in the U.S. So going back to our previous conversation we just had. Um, now, if... So this person clearly is not authorized to work in the United States right now. No, because they don't have a current TN. Now, I'm going to go back to the Social Security, though, because we get this question a lot. That Social Security number is yours for life. It doesn't go away. So this individual has a Social Security number that will remain valid, and it will remain valid forever with authorization from DHS until that person becomes a permanent resident or becomes a U.S. citizen. So if, um, they, if they go and get a new work authorization, they keep, their new, they keep their old social security number and they use it with their new work authorization. That number is tied to you personally, so it never changes. Correct. Never get a new one. But to the rest of it, right, they're being reported yeah. as self-employed. So this goes down to how this individual is filing these taxes. Uh, we can't advise on that. That's more of a no, tax question. But the rest of it, you, you don't working want advice remotely from Poland. You don't want advice from us <laughs> on, taxes. on taxes. <laughs> we just got a we just got an email from our accountant asking us all sorts of questions. I know about I kind of glossed over that one. I'll have <laughs> I ignored to get that. Back to her later. <laughs> Isn't that her job? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, again, this is a remote working situation, almost the same as the first question we answered. This is being done from Poland. So there is no work authorization that would be required as long as the work's being performed from abroad. As far as those tax issues, good right. Luck. So if he's managing that business from outside the United States and he has no need to be in the U.S. to continue to manage his business, 
Um, you know, there may be tax obligations there, but there is no immigration authorization required. Now, if he were to come to the United States, again, as a visitor or in any way, and they know that he's got a business here in the United States, potentially employees, he's got an EIN number, um, then he may have problems either getting a visa to enter the United States or... Using ESTA. Yeah. Yeah, you could... Yep. Yep. So that's a problem. So as long as you stay in Poland, you're fine. Mm -hmm. The second you come to U.S. soil, could be an issue. Right. Do we want to take another question? Go for it. All right. So... This person said that they would love the opportunity to find employment in the United States. They currently work as an ambulance transport attendant and have a diploma of emergency health care, which is equivalent to an advanced EMT in, in the U.S. Um, they have a U.S. company in California who's willing to provide them with employment. Uh, is it possible through an E3 visa? If not, can we just give them another idea of how they can start the process to get whatever visa they need to come do this? And I'm going to correct the question because this individual... I know what they're saying. They're saying E3, but what they mean is EB3. Mm. And I guess this is an opportunity to talk about what that is. So an E3 visa, just to clarify what an E3 is, E3 is for is a visa classification for Australians. Um, this individual is a Canadian. So uh, E3 is not even available uh, for, for Canadians, only Australians. Uh, but what they are referring to is an EB3 visa. And that's, I don't like it being called EB3. That's how, I'm not quite sure why everyone refers to it as that. Because EB3 is the, an immigrant visa process by which an employer can sponsor you for permanent employment in the United States and obtain a green card. So I refer to it as EB3 sponsorship. In my mind, it works better. Why? Because this process is lengthy. Right now, even for a Canadian, if you go through a green card sponsorship, it's going to take two to three years because of delays that we're currently experiencing with the U.S. Department of Labor. So is it possible for a company to sponsor somebody on an EB-3 without them being in the U.S. or for this type of position? The answer is yes, they can. They could sponsor you for that. However, uh, most companies are not going to sponsor you because you don't currently have status in the United States and you're not working for them in this during this process. EB3 is for future employment. They have to do what's called the test of the labor market and they have to run ads to make sure there's no willing, able, and qualified U.S. workers out there to take this job and go through all these hoops and then file with the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, get their approval, and then ultimately in this situation, if you're outside of the United States, you'd have to go through the consulate get an immigrant visa, then enter the country. So three, four years down the road when you get this, sure, you can come in and do it. Yeah. So if you can convince an employer to sponsor you for a job that you're not going to be able in to fill years time, yeah. for three or four years, then yes. Uh, so typically in this situation, what happens is someone will come in under a TN or an H-1B or uh, other qualifying work status, and then the employer will simultaneously sponsor for a green card. So they're here working already in the U.S. on the TN while the employer is doing the EB-3 green card sponsorship. So they're working for them at the same time. Uh, in addition to that, this profession does not qualify for a TN or an H-1B, unfortunately. So you couldn't get work status uh, for that, that position in the United States, not under TN or H-1B. All right. 
So this one was written, and it's a little difficult to decipher, but it looks like this um, this person is a Canadian citizen, born in India. They ha currently have a son here um, going to college on an F1, which is a student visa. And they have a um, application right now that they're uh, waiting for a priority date. So I guess this person's father sponsored them uh, back in 2011, and they're still waiting for a visa to be available in their category. Um, and their question is whether or not, if they stay in Canada and they keep their, um, can they enter the, if they stay in Canada as a Canadian citizen, can they come back into the United States when their visa is, when one is available for them and change status in the United States? Well, adjust in this case, right? Yeah, adjust, sorry. So go to a green card from a visitor visa is what they're asking based on that category. Right. As a Canadian, can they come into the U.S. as a visitor and then adjust status once their priority date is current? Yes. It's possible. It is possible. Again, with some complications, um, because a, a visitor visa is a non-immigrant visa, your intention on a visitor visa should be just to visit. Now, intent changes. So if you were happen to visit the United States and your visa category became current, and now you qualify for a green card and the ability to adjust status when you're in the United States when that changes, yes, right. you can file to adjust status. And what can't you do? You cannot enter the United States as a visitor with the intention of adjusting your status. So if you show up at the border and you say, I'm coming in today, I'm coming into the United my States. My son's a U.S. citizen. A, no, it's his father. Oh, my father. <laughs> his father sponsored him back in 2011. And my, you show up at the border and you say, oh, my visa category is current. I'm coming in. I'm going to adjust status. They are going to deny you entry all day long. Yep. You're not getting in. And they're going to notate your file and you're not getting in for a while. So um, that is something you cannot do. So can this person do this? Sure. It, they can, but it needs to be done correctly, and they need to have good advice in order to be able to, to, to handle this situation. Exactly. It's a timing issue. It is a timing issue. And these are the often the issues that we deal with, uh, not only with Canadians that are visa exempt and come in um, under this visitor status, but also with TNs, right? TNs are also non-immigrant, and they face the same similar timing issues if they get married to a US citizen or come in on a TN and want to adjust status or or pursue a green card through employment these same timing issues apply so can these all be done yes they can if done correctly right and he had some other concerns here that it looks like his son is on an F1 so he wanted to know if I think if he can use that as his reason to coming into the United States um, and then if his son can adjust status and then uh, also to know uh, oh, it looks like he thinks that, uh, oh, he knows that he needs to complete his process for uh, adjustment within six months. I guess he's referring to the um, limit on his entry as a visitor. Oh, he's, yeah, he's concerned about overstaying a visitor. Visa. Yeah, yeah. So that would not be an issue. So if this is all handled correctly and you file to adjust status, you get to stay in the United States while your case is pending. Yes, you do. So as long as as long as it's filed before that visitor status expires, mm -hmm. then there will have no issues. Right, here. it doesn't have to completely process before that status Correct. expires. You'll be in what's called an authorized period to stay and allowed to remain in the United States while that case pen is is adjudicated or 
receives a final decision. Right, and we can't really answer this question about his son. It sounds like we'd need some more information about his education and what part of it he's on and whether this would work. So um, there's some calculation that needs to be done there. Good question, though. Yeah. So I think we can finish on this last one. This last one looks like a, a pretty decent question. Um, maybe not. Got our papers jumbled here. I'll ask this. <laughs> I'll ask this question because for some reason it didn't print out. This one says, "I am an IT consultant with 20 plus years of experience, Canadian, incorporated in Canada." I like this person already, by the way, because <laughs> there's right ways to do things and there's wrong way to do things. And this person, so far, and I haven't read the whole question, but it looks like they're doing it the right way. So, IT consultant, 20 years experience in Canada, incorporated in Canada, has a bachelor's of engineering in computer and communications um, gets calls from the u.s oh, and they want, they want to know if he can uh it, oh and they want proof of his visa status um to work in the united states and then he references uh one of our our articles from our blogs thank you <laughs> give another <laughs> plug for our blog where we actually address this question on whether or not a canadian with a contract uh with a u.s client or uh, a U.S. employer can get a TN visa. Um, so can you? So if you're in Canada, uh, working remotely in Canada, you have your own IT consulting business, it's a Canadian corporation, and you're getting contracts for U.S. clients, and they need you to come into the United States to service that contract, can you get a TN visa to do that? Oh, yeah, you can get a TN to, be, to do that. You just need to provide the correct information at the border, and they could prove you for that. Um, you know, the question becomes who's going to petition you for that TN. Are you going to petition from your Canadian company, which is a possibility, or are you going to have the U.S. company petition for you? Sounds so this person wants to avoid, so it avoid sounds like sponsorship. avoid yeah. sponsorship from the U.S. And yes, in this situation, you can do that. Yep, you can. So um, in a lot of cases, if you have a Canadian company, which you work for, and they need to send you to the United States on a contract to service some part of that contract, you can get a TN if it's one of the TN professions to come in and do that work. And this goes back, and we mentioned this before, about your sources and where you get your information. The FAM, is the, the Foreign Affairs Manual is what that is, talks about this exact, exact situation. And under the regulations, you can obtain TN status inside the United States to perform work for a U.S. or a foreign employer. It doesn't have to be a U.S. employer. So here, this contract would be with, here is his foreign company, and he'd be servicing that contract with a U.S. client. So the petitioner, the, the way these petitions do, and we do these all the time, it actually comes from the Canadian company in this instance, saying, hey, as a Canadian company, we have a contract with John's IT down in Arkansas, and we need to send our employee down there to perform uh services as a computer engineer. Please grant uh, our employee TN status to do that. And with the proper documentation of the relationship between the U.S. client and, and the Canadian company, then CBP would grant TN status for that individual to come down and service that contract. So yes, it's a little more nuanced of a TN. It's not one of your straightforward, you know, I'm... Yeah, and there's additional documentation that's required with that type of application. So you want to make sure you're working with a practitioner that does these frequently so you know what to bring with you to the border. Short answer, yes. It can be done. You can do it. Um, so... 
thanks again, everybody, for your questions. We love them. Keep submitting them. We'd, we'd love to continue uh, answering your questions. Yeah, and if you submitted a question this week and we didn't get to it today, we might get to it next week, so keep listening. Or remind us and send it again. Say, hey, I submitted <laughs> a question and you didn't answer, and I really want it answered. Remind us. But, yeah, uh, thank you for listening. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe where you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to our, our blog through our website. You can also catch us on, on YouTube where we publish videos. And tune in next time to the Arrive podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great day.